0: Hi, everybody. I'm Dr. Megan Hamlin, and welcome to Unravelling Science, the podcast where I speak to leading scientific researchers and ask them who they are, what they do, and why they are so passionate about doing it. Throughout this series, I hope to welcome you all into the world of research and to really get a glimpse of the people behind the lab coats, from immunology to astronomy, cancer biology to bioengineering, and much more. So, if you're ready, sit back and let's begin Unraveling Science. Yes so today I'm joined by Dr Michael Monaghan, Assistant Professor in Biomedical Engineering in Trinity College Dublin. So Michael's research group works on tissue engineering and regenerative medicine with a specific focus on developing biomaterials to promote cardiac tissue regeneration. (laughs) And throughout his career, Michael has been a recipient of the Marie Curie Fellowship and the Julia Polak European Doctorate Awards, to name but a few. So, yeah, I'm absolutely delighted to chat to you today, Michael. So thanks again for coming on the podcast.
1: Megan, thanks a million for asking me. I'm really looking forward to discussing the research and what we're doing and what brought me to doing that research.
0: Exactly. So I suppose... Really, to start in, I I want to kind of go back to primary school or secondary school. So what was Michael Monaghan like in school? Or Were you always interested in science? What were your passions back then?
1: Yeah, so I I don't know how I could describe myself back then. I probably wasn't very nice or the teachers didn't think I was too nice because I used to ask a lot of questions. Um, I grew up in the countryside and very much not an urban setting where you'd have a lot of visibility of people in professional scientific roles. The major scientific role you'd see maybe is people, the, the local doctor and so on. Um, but I was always very inquisitive in school and one thing that I really enjoyed both primary school and secondary school and it was because I had really good teachers in these subjects was maths. I always loved maths and this was something that you know always challenged my problem-solving skills. It was the subject I probably studied the most because I enjoyed it the most. Um, I also, my mother is a nurse, and so there was that um, exposure to biology. So my mother's old textbooks, from when she was a nursing student, were up in the press, and I used to just take them down and look at the pictures and read about the different diseases and um, conditions that she was studying. And I didn't understand half of them at the time. I was still quite young, but I found it just really interesting that you could have these different situations in the body and they needed treatment and what kinds of treatments could be applied. With um, regards to science, I guess my main exposure would have been through TV. And in those days, we had maybe six TV channels. Um, and it's not that long ago, but um, there was you know, very good programs on TV that used to, show scientific progresses and so on. I remember when I was about 10 or 11, the Vacanti mouse. So the Vacanti mouse was this mouse that basically looked like it had an ear at the back of it. Okay. And this ear was created by, you know, um, putting a, a, a biomaterial, so material that was suitable to react to the body and wouldn't cause any adverse effects, but in the shape of an ear so that skin cells or, or cells from the body would infiltrate it and, it could possibly be a prosthetic ear. So this, at the time, this is 11, 11 Yeah, just seemed like science fiction. But hmm. it's what people in my field are doing, or doing a lot more nowadays They're three D printing these um, ears. So, so yeah, I was constantly inquisitive.
0: And then, like throughout secondary school, and when you were doing your CAO, did you? What did you uh, choose to do in college for your undergrad?
1: Yeah, so I, I actually. Had law down, I think, originally, so which is very different. And I think this the interest in law was watching TV shows where they would be arguing a court case and everybody would be, you know, turning things upside down with new arguments and challenging um, uh, the other lawyer's hypothesis and so on. And I just found that argumentation, but based on fact or, or material that was compiled, quite interesting. So I was drawn to law, but I didn't have a very strong aptitude for languages as such. I definitely was excelling you know, in physics, biology, uh, and maths. They were my strong skill set. So I also had engineering and a few science courses down in the CAO. And then just by luck, um, I fell into biomedical engineering. I said I'd give it a try. I went to NUI Galway to study it, and I just loved it from day one. The different lectures that we had... Uh, the different problems you were being presented with in our continuing assessment and so on. I just really, really enjoyed it. And I really, I really got into my groove once Mm -hmm. I started that course. So I was lucky.
0: Yeah. And I think uh, from what I've heard, like Galway and NUI is quite a hub for biomedical engineering. So it's probably the the best place for for that um, training.
1: I think Ireland in general is. um, And and that's why we offer biomedical engineering in, in, in a lot of the universities. But Galway, especially at that time, and it was just before the economic crash, Mm. and things were really buzzing at that time where a lot of uh, multinational companies were investing in Ireland, were setting up their and expanding their hopes in Ireland. There was a lot of interest nearby, and that was really driving the development of these biomedical engineering programs in the different universities. So Galway was a very good place to be at the time. It was typically a location that... I'm based, I'm from the west of Ireland, and Galway is kind of the place to go, mm-hmm. uh, university wise Dublin, of course, was probably equidistant, but Galway seemed more of... Um, crack. <laughs> crack, or it seemed to be more, how do I say, more cultural, on a yeah. cultural level, similar to the, where I was from in the west of Ireland.
0: Yeah no I I mean I definitely feel that as well like I'm from the Midlands um, and going up I did my undergrad in UCD. I think UCD is you know you have your agricultural science students and you've kind of you're on campus and it's kind of its own little bubble and I know a lot of my friends from school would have went to Galway as well and would have felt the same so yeah I get that kind of you know cultural kind of background um, and then maybe as I like grew up I was a uh, able for Trinity and able for the big, the big city and being actually in the big smoke. In, it
1: would have been different for me being in Trinity. I think I would have enjoyed it just as much. It would have been a mm. different experience. And obviously Dublin's a bigger city, more, more of an international European city as well. But it just happened to be Galway at that time. I was kind of drawn towards it.
0: And then following your undergrad degree, you then did a PhD, but was that straight after or did you take a break beforehand?
1: So when I finished my degree, I got a J1 visa and I went over to San Diego Mm. and I spent the summer there and I didn't really have anything definitive at the time sorted out. So I was half in conversation with my mentor, um, Abhi Pandit, who's based in the New York about doing a PhD, but it wasn't set in stone. And I was kind of looking around me thinking what I would do. So eventually during that summer, I decided, yes, you know, I think I'm going to do a PhD. I had a really good experience with my final year project, which I did with Abbey. And I liked the semi-independence of the role as well. Even though you're a student, you're a PhD super, student, you're a supervisor, but I felt like I had a lot of uh, autonomy in the project and I could, you know, uh, lead it myself under his supervision. So I liked that idea of being kind of my own boss mm. um, on my project. But I decided still to wait a bit longer, so I worked with a company for the first year, but it was kind of a collaboration between Abbott Pandit's lab, my PhD supervisor, and the company, but it was a a job that I I was doing. I was working as a research assistant, and I got more engrossed in the lab and got to know people in the lab better, and I would be hanging out with the other PhD students, and I realized after a while that I really wanted to work full-time on a project, a long-term project for four years, and really find out something new or develop something new that can be of importance. And then in the uh, 2008, I began the PhD project.
0: Mm-hmm. And and that was four years then?
1: No, it was a bit longer. Um, I My PhD wouldn't have been four years. It was actually a bit longer. One, it took me longer than four years because it just took longer. And I actually took about... I'd say six months out. So this is kind of one of the hurdles I had in my PhD. It was in 2010 where I just started feeling really sick and very flu-like and I was just like trapped in bed. I couldn't move. So eventually I went to the hospital and after a few diagnoses and so on, they discovered I had an abscess in my brain.
0: God, okay. So
1: this is a medical emergency um, and it can be fatal if not treated. So... Uh, I spent essentially four months in a hospital bed. I was actually quite fine but I needed IV drips of antibiotics administered to me, uh, but I needed to be in hospital and then a period of time at home recovering from that as well. So that was a good six months that I had to take out and not do any PhD work whatsoever at that time. And I looked back when I was, and I'm sure there's students in this situation right now the situation mm. that's ongoing and they're trying to be as efficient as possible with the COVID situation uh, but I was really panicked at the time because I knew that was eaten into my PhD yeah. time and fortunately Abby was great you know he was able to fund me and uh, mm. to the very end of my PhD but I was trying to write at the time and I looked back at the stuff I wrote then and <laughs> I just wasn't in the fit frame of mind to write at the time because my brain wasn't working properly so so it took about five years almost five years God,
0: and how far into your PhD did that happen was that kind of close to the end
1: it was kind of just past midway so yeah I would have been in I would have kind of been in the third year at that mm. point so I established my platform I was ready to kind of do kind of more meaningful studies and I actually planned to which I did end up doing eventually like this was just a blip like the current situation as well it is a blip and it, it, we look back at in years to come and think, yeah, okay, it doesn't matter, you know, that mm. setback. But um, I was planning as well at that time to go on a research exchange to Germany. And that got delayed by definitely a year uh, because of that situation.
0: Yeah, God, that's, well, I mean, you're you're all fine now anyways. That was the six months and then you kind of got back. Got
1: back um, but I've had friends who've had, you know, other reasons to um take time off from the Mm. phd either physical or mental health reasons um and they have taken that time off to look after themselves and get better and they've come back when they've finished as well so so it is really important to, to to look after yourself during these times
0: yeah. And, and I think as well, like uh, it's, it's spoken about a little bit in the media, but, you know, on a mental health situation during a PhD, it can be quite tough because, you know, it's very self-driven, self-motivated. And I find where, you know, as researchers, we're often quite self-critical. So there's a lot of like, you know, pressure that we're, we're putting on ourselves um, and maybe from external sources as well. So, yeah, I do think the four years or three years of a PhD is is stressful apart from of the other issues that, that you encountered as well
1: yeah absolutely yeah and I, I really feel for people doing their PhD now because mm-hmm. it's tough um losing out in that time and then perhaps worrying about funding when funding runs out and extensions. so but it's 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 I mean it's a situation that's very fluid, fluid at the moment regulations are changing protocols are changing all the time so we just have to go with it I think
0: yeah. So I suppose, talk to me then about Germany. So you, you moved over there and you were working there for a few years um, before moving back to Ireland. So how was that?
1: That was great. So it was a connection that I'd established and collaboration that I'd established during my PhD with that exchange that I mentioned. And um, when I was back in Ireland, I wrote a Marie Curie Fellowship. Uh-huh. Um, so the Marie Curie Fellowship is really awarded to, the, the, it's a postdoctoral fellowship, it's awarded to, to you, the postdoctoral fellow, and you're guided by your academic supervisor and hosted by an institute. So my institute was in um, Germany and um, outside of Stuttgart, it was the Fraunhofer Institute. And my supervisor then was Katja schenkel who I know was and still is a brilliant scientist in the field of external and stem cell biology. So I really knew that I'd benefit from going over there and doing my postdoctoral research there because I knew there's so much I could learn from Katya and her group. Uh-huh. And the great facilities that they had there because i visited there before and their labs were just amazing. I Fraunhofer is um, it's an institute, so it's very different to a um, publicly funded uh, lab that you'd see in a university. It's much, much bigger. There's a greater availability of supplies and, and equipment as well and so the research facilities are really good and then it was great to move to another country and mm. learn a new, new language as well and see the different customs that they have over there it was a really great experience I learned an awful lot and it was really beneficial for me and at the time similar to my leaving certain even for my phd i didn't have this clear track that oh, i want to be a professor in biomedical engineering it all kind of happened at each stage so while I was over there I didn't realise it at the time but it was very beneficial for when I wanted to come back to Ireland and look for a job Mm. because having that international postdoctoral experience and then learning these new skills that maybe weren't as prevalent in Ireland was attractive because it was something I was bringing back
0: Yeah Um, and so maybe just talk to us a little bit about the field of bioengineering and then I suppose how your research fits into that
1: Mm -hmm. So like, where, where I am now in Trinity, um, there's a the cluster office of, of principal, I always say private investigators, <laughs> principal investigators, so PI is principal investigator, and um, there's a group of us in Trinity Centre for Bioengineering, um, our director is uh, Professor Trina Lally, and we're all working in different kind of areas, so... Mm. Mark Hearn, for instance, working on corneal, so the front of the eye tissue engineering. Connor Buffy working on the introverted disc, David Poi, mechanical biology, uh, and several other people there as well working on medical devices, 3D printing, cardiovascular uh, tissue engineering. So we all have our own groups then. So um, similar to many other labs, you have a big lab and then you might have 10 groups in there. So my group is um, a small group of us were currently five PhD students and one postdoctoral researcher. And we're in the field of tissue engineering and biomaterials. So I guess the best way to describe it, I put it under the umbrella of tissue engineering. Mm -hmm. And under that umbrella, then you have materials, which we call biomaterials. Uh, You have cells, which can be uh, any type of cell or stem cells that can be used to get other types of cells. And then the third part being molecules, so be it proteins, drugs, any small molecule can influence those cells or can be put inside the biomaterial. So inside the biomaterial, we can put in cells, we can put in the biomolecules, and it's this, we call this the tissue engineering triad. So the ultimate goal of the work that we're doing, it's, it's, a few, it's different, it's like twofold. So the first is to develop materials, and develop materials that can be inserted into the body to replace a function or encourage um, growth of new tissue or regeneration of tissue. And that regeneration can be encouraged by the material itself or by factors being released by the cells inside that material or by the molecules. So that's the ultimate aim to be able to put our tissue engineering product into a patient. So we can get the materials to encourage the local tissue to regenerate itself or put inside that material, the biomaterial, um, cells that will release therapeutic factors to encourage that regeneration or drugs, these small molecules. So that's the treatment that we hope maybe someday will reach the patient. But another application is if you think about maybe drugs that are being developed for the variety of diseases at the moment, they're identified through different algorithms and so on, and then they're mostly tested in animals, these animals being mice, rabbits, and rats, and so on. But the problem is that these animals, they don't replicate human physiology and human disease. And, you know, if you imagine like in the U.S., they spend maybe $71 billion um, annually on these type of what we call preclinical animal tests. And a lot of it is wasted. And millions of animals' lives are wasted as well in this pursuit. So using these materials that we might engineer, in my case, engineer to mimic the tissue of the heart and put inside that material heart cells. And these heart cells, we get from stem cells that we differentiate into these heart cells. We're trying to create a heart on a dish Mm. or heart tissue on a dish, a human heart tissue on a dish that beats, uh, that will exert force. So will will contract and expand. And then also that we can create um, what we call a heart attack. So when somebody has a heart attack, you have a blocked blood vessel, you have a loss of blood supply, which is a loss then of oxygen and nutrient supply to muscle tissue in the heart and that, tissue then can die and then it's replaced after a while with a scar mm-hmm. so we're trying to create those conditions in the lab and then use that as a drug testing system on a dish so that's kind of our approach where we're developing the biomaterials and the bio, when we think of biomaterials biomaterials include plastics they include ceramics they include metals and so on we're working on a new type of biomaterial and um, it's a plastic but it's actually a when people normally think of plastic and wires and electricity. We usually usually use plastic to coat um, our leads and wires and plugs and so on to stop us getting an electric shock, so they're insulators. But the plastics we're using are conductors, so they'll conduct an electrical signal. So why do we want plastics to do that? Well, typically metals will do this, but metals can be quite stiff. Mm. They require high temperatures to form into different shapes and to process into different configurations. So with our plastics, our polymers, as they're also known, uh, we're able to form them into specific architectures that will mimic then certain geometries and what we call pore sizes to allow our stem cells to go in and mature and form cardiac tissue. And at the same time, we can apply an electrical signal efficiently because that material is there. I went kind of through... A very convoluted way of
0: explaining that. <laughs> no, not at all. I think I think the whole area is fascinating, and there's you know a number of talking points here. But firstly, I'm really interested in the regenerative medicine stem cell side of it, and I think you know we hear this buzzword all the time, stem cells. But I suppose could you just give us insight as to what that means, um, and how can we you know regenerate or mature a cardiac tissue from a stem cell?
1: Mm-hmm. So. A stem cell by its definition is, let's talk about any cell. Any cell makes up a tissue in your body and they have a certain amount of turnover. So if you imagine you have your skin and you think of your top layer of your skin, that turns over quite efficiently and your skin is constantly being regenerated and the top layer of your skin is actually being shed. Same as the inside of your uh, small or large intestine, you have these um, villi or these curvatures, and the, the inner layer of that is a layer of skins that are constantly regenerating themselves. If you think about other tissues such as uh, bone, that actually regenerates. You break a bone, uh, you get it fixed in place, or you immobilize it, your bone will regenerate and you get a new bone. But some tissues like brain tissue and also some muscle tissue, specifically heart muscle tissue, they don't regenerate. Mm. So if you think about um, the cells in your heart, and an interesting study was performed, I think, in the 80s, but it was based on um, the Cold War. And During the Cold War, they, the Russians and the, the United States were competing to get you know, the best nuclear weapons they could get, and they were kind of shown off to each other by hmm. testing these in the South Pacific Ocean. And at this time, a lot of radioactive material was being released into our atmosphere, and with the global currents this radioactive material was spreading around the world and being incorporated into our vegetation and so very minute amounts but at that time there was probably a certain concentration of radioactive material in the atmosphere and people were exposed to this so later on people were looking at people that lived around that time before that time and after that time and looking at their tissues and doing carbon dating on their tissues and they're able to kind of establish how many cells people were born with and how many cells developed later on during their lifetime. So um, by regeneration and so on. So when you think about the heart, if you think about an 80 year old person, half their heart cells are 50% of their heart cells are the ones they were born with. And then 50% are the ones that regenerated over their lifetime. So you have a a regenerative rate of about 0.3 to 1%. So in that instance, with your heart, you don't have um, a supply of cells that will easily regenerate into new heart cells versus something, for instance, like the skin, where skin grafts are very effective. So we're looking at stem cells, which are cells that don't have a defined function as such, um, and they can become other cell types. They also can turn over, so they can replicate each other before they decide to go down this pathway of a defined cell type. And there are different types of stem cells. Some can become two or three types of um, cells. Some can become many, many types of cells. So probably more than 10 years ago, probably 15 years ago, we had a cell type called a pluripotent stem cell. And the only pluripotent stem cell that was kind of known was an embryonic stem cell. And that's why there's this misconception among some people that when you talk about stem cells, you're talking about stem cells that were obtained from an embryo Mm -hmm. And that embryo being obtained from the creation of a life or creation of a possible life. So we work with pluripotent stem cells, but we work with pluripotent stem cells that have been generated using a new technology called induction or induced pluripotent stem cell. And in this case, there's no creation of a potential life. It's essentially, to describe it briefly, if you imagine it's my skin, I take a scraping off that and I take... Um, what we call a fibroblast cell line, and we reprogram the genetics of that cell so that it has this pluripotency, this stemness that it can become any other type of cell. And it has this capacity to turn over or replicate itself before it becomes this defined cell. So we work with these induced pluripotent stem cells in my group. And the handy thing with these is that they're human. um, Mm -hmm. So they've been obtained from an adult human without the creation of life with consent, And uh, we can grow them as much as we want. We can grow millions and millions and millions of them as long as we have the food to feed them and the space to hold them. And then we can differentiate them into the cardiomyocytes that we're interested in. And the beauty of this type of technology is that, say for instance, Megan, you needed new heart tissue or you needed heart tissue in a dish to model your heart tissue to test out drugs that would possibly be a good treatment for you if you had a condition we could obtain your skin cells we could reprogram them into just pluripotent stem cells then make your heart cells from them and then uh, test out those different things and that would they would be your cells and even if we put those cells into your heart as a graft or something you wouldn't have a rejection from your body there would mm. be no immune response because your body would immediately identify these cells as as being your cells because they would have the same epigenetic genetic makeup
0: yeah no it is it's fascinating so when i was in my third year i did a internship in san diego working on uh, stem cell research but it was in the field of uh, ms and we were using these induced pluripotent stem cells and actually it's it's funny as i hear you talking about it you know in such kind of broken down terms it is actually amazing the way we can we can we can do that because you know we do hear these buzzwords a lot of times in ips cells but actually to hear you know we can take a skin cell, and that it's very personalised. I think that's that's the the key here. Is what you're saying that you know a drug might work for me, but it might not work for you. But if we could model this as you're doing, and I and I think you call them or, organoids.
1: Yeah, some people call them organoids, organ on a chip, uh, tissue on a chip. Um, it is, and even at that, you know, it might not. It's gonna be a while before we get you know the the Megan on a chip we yeah. might get the, the people like Megan on a chip, so you know, people that would have similar rates yeah. as you, same blood type, maybe, um, same history, background and so on. And that might be one way of getting closer to a more personalized treatment for a patient.
0: Yeah, and, and I'm also just fascinated with the fact that, you know, you can kind of model this in a dish, but does it beat? does, does this tissue have a pulse, if that makes sense.
1: It does. Um so My PhD student, Sinead, uh, Sinead and she's a great student. What she was doing was she was doing this differentiation protocol. And kind of the first sign that you know what's working is that they start beating on a dish. That's the very first sign that you know that you're getting your cardiomyocytes being formed. Now, later on, this beating is actually very spontaneous. So you might have two million cells on a dish, but you might have, I don't know, 10 groups on that dish and they're all beaten at different frequencies and beaten at different times so they're not synchronous or, mm. or synchronized together so what we're doing in our group with our material is we're lifting these myocytes. so they're not fully carrying myocides. they're still a bit immature because they're being differentiated from stem cells but we're incorporating them with our material and this is really where the, it's getting even more engineering. What we do is we apply an electrical stimulation to our cells. If you imagine you see these ads where you have these amazing belts that you can put on people's bellies and they have like abs in, 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 in a month, these uh, yeah. ab belts or whatever. And uh, we're doing a similar concept. We're basically applying electrical stimulus. And that electrical stimulus is driving all the cells at the same time to contract together and okay. then release upon release of the signal and then we can control the frequency. So how often we get them to beat as well. Now the reason we do this is not just to get them beating, but actually to mature them. It's like a muscle and we're trying mm-hmm. to get this muscle to train and we're training this muscle with the electrical stimulus. And it's a, it is a very engineering project where we create the electrodes, we model the electric field that's going to be applied across our construct, and A little bit of um, software and coding as well so that we can get a feedback loop to see that we're actually applying the signal that we want to in the first place.
0: Yeah, no, it seems, I mean, from what I kind of know of bioengineering and and your field, there's a lot of emerging of a lot of different fields there because, you know, you need to know the biology. You need to know the physics, as you're saying, and then the kind of engineering side of it. And And I'm also interested in... How do you, you know, you, you spoke earlier that, you know, you kind of mimic a myocardial infarction or a heart attack. And how do you do that? Yeah,
1: but we haven't gone that far yet. But um, what we are, uh, there's a number of ways we know we can do it. One is just application of um, a tip that is really, really cold. So we put something in dry ice or liquid nitrogen. It's called a cryo injury. So it's an injury by ice where when we apply a tip that is very, very cold we're going to create death of cells, and that death is there to mimic the death of cells that would occur with a blocked blood vessels so that's one option. The other option then is to put in an environment with very very low oxygen concentration uh, we call this hypoxia that again is to mimic the lack of nutrient supply and oxygen, and then thirdly add the the heart attack is actually in very inflamed environments, so when you think about inflammation there's Uh, inflammation you get a lot release of a lot of factors that can affect other cells and so on so we can add inflammatory factors as well to our culture and see what effect that has ideally though the best way is the death of the tissue Mm. um, or you know restriction of the oxygen supply to that tissue but kind of like what you mentioned there there's a lot to consider the engineering part of it there's the chemistry as well, whatever we introduce to our system, and then what's the knock-on effect to the biochemistry of the cells.
0: Yeah, no, it's, it's quite multidisciplinary um, from, from what I can see. And also just you touching it there about the inflammatory aspect. When you insert a scaffold or a biomaterial into a person, is there an inflammatory response or how can we kind of dampen that to prevent rejection, I suppose?
1: Mm. So what we know uh and take for instance a hip implant, which is, you know, what, what people know about or be familiar about or even stents. The first thing that happens when you put these materials in the body is that they're going to get washed over with maybe blood or physiological fluid and basically these salty solutions that contain a lot of protein and those proteins will adhere to the surface of those materials. And depending on how that protein adheres can then later dictate a response, so an inflammatory response. So what we see is that um, the typical response we see is that macrophages will arrive to the the site of the biomaterial implantation and they'll make a decision. And that decision is, do they like the material or do they not like it? Mm. So if they like the material, they'll, they'll, they'll clean up the injury. Obviously there's an injury created by putting in the biomaterial, but then they'll try and make everything calm again and make that decision that the area is happy, it's safe. Uh, Regeneration may occur to a certain degree, but everything's okay. Or the macrophage will decide that this material is a foreign body object. And it will try and phagocytose, eat up this material that is put Mm. in. But obviously if it's a large material, it's very strong like metal, it's going to get frustrated. And as it gets frustrated, it's going to decide then, look, I can't destroy this thing. I need to seal it away from the rest of the body. And that's when we get a fibrotic response. And this fibrotic response is not a good thing because what happens then is that the macrophage will orchestrate the organization of fibrotic, so scar tissue around the implant. And again, the hip implant is a perfect example of this, where it becomes separated from the tissue and you have essentially a material that's there or an implant that's there, but it's completely isolated from the body, both in terms of how it can interact by... Um, Releasing molecules, but also isolated mechanically as well. In that it could be like a loose implant, there's a bad material mismatch in that it's not integrated with the mechanics of the material. Mm. So it's as if you had, so would be a good example, but if you don't have that continuation of mechanics, you're going to have either a weak material or a material that's constantly kind of shaking or jutting uh, and causing more and more damage yeah as time goes on uh so how we kind of get around that is we look at the material that we use and there are certain materials we know will work quite well in the body i was talking about metals there but we can also look at other materials so plastics metals ceramics they're typically considered synthetic materials ceramics not as much but we look at natural materials as well materials that we get from collagen we can make biomaterials from collagen the body likes materials Mm -hmm. made from collagen, they recognize the collagen as one of its own, so they're not going to react as bad to it. But we can also control the architecture. So we have a material that's coarse, we're allowing the body to grow into it. And you have that nice kind of integration of tissue with your biomaterial as well. But again, it's all dictated kind of primarily by that initial macrophage response, which is very, very, very important. And It is controlled by by the material, but also by the architecture of it. And obviously, the patient as well. You know, how healthy is the patient? How is their inflammatory response? How do they respond in general to anything? Um, What line of drugs are they on? Are they on NSAIDs Mm. and so on? So it all has an effect. But it is a big concern in the biomaterials community, this foreign body response. Um, But we we can get around it.
0: Yeah, and and I've heard of people kind of maybe coating them with different. I know you talk about collagen, but maybe other things that would dampen this this macrophage kind of response or, or other immune cell responses. I don't know whether you work on that.
1: Did in the past? I mean, you can with biomaterials. You can they are materials and they have chemistry, and they, mm. every type of chemistry has maybe usually would have a functional group. So these functional groups can serve as a way to attach a drug molecule to these materials. It can also, your material, depending on how it's made, you could look at using your biomaterial as a reservoir of uh, non-viral delivery. So delivering basically drugs that will be incorporated into cells and get those cells of the tissue to react a certain way. So to dampen maybe their inflammatory response, I think is where you're heading, or get those cells to reduce the paracrine factor, which is you know a, help, a helpful Um, molecule that will help the overall wound healing response. Um, And that would be a generic response. Then there are other kind of um, disease situations where there'd be certain molecules that are very important to that situation. So when we think about the brain or scarring in the brain or ischemic environments where we want to encourage blood vessel growth um, or dampen inflammation, dampen fibrosis, there are a lot of different approaches that we employ in the tissue engineering community where we can not dampen something or encourage something and this really gets into a very advanced uh therapeutical medical product so ATMPs is how we term them in that we have to also consider how easy it would be to regulate such a product because as an engineer we're thinking about a product and mm. if we're going to create a material that has these different functions will it be approved by the food and drug administration or any regulatory bodies that it's safe enough to go into a patient? Uh, and is it worth, is it effective enough to put into a patient?
0: Uh, yeah, and, and I think the kind of thought process behind that is very important, Is in is this gonna, it might look great in the lab, uh, but is this going to ultimately work and, and will it work kind of in, in vivo? And I suppose I'm also interested, You know, what kind of drives this passion for research? It's not boring,
1: you see. It's 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 every day is different, and I think you know I'm working with different people every day, and as yeah every day. My main reason is that every day is so different, and there are some few successes. Uh, there's a lot of knockbacks. You get used to those, but you don't get used to the few successes. So when they happen, um, it really makes it worth it. In my role as well, uh, environmental engineering is very 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 multidisciplinary. My my training, I guess, is as an engineer. Uh, from my bachelor's degree and i moved more into biology and definitely more into biochemistry as well and I'm still learning a lot every day about these different fields that I have to engage with. I can't ignore them because they are important for the research I'm doing and I can learn a lot from them as well. Uh, there's definitely a lot of niches there um, across the different fields and I think especially after coming to trinity you know it has such a and dublin actually in in general and ireland but um in the circles that i'm working in at the moment there's a strong expertise in immunology Mm. and metabolism and i haven't been exposed to this before and this is another aspect of the multidisciplinarity that is really steering somewhat some of my research like we we have moved into metabolism i was working on it already in germany but that's kind of what would get me up I guess it's just it's very different and when you're a a PI in that you don't have a boss so uh, some people would love this and they might stay in bed but I actually get up and I get up early and I probably work more days than I should because I just love what I'm doing at the moment it's not easy either but um
0: and did you find that transition from kind of being in the lab and being a postdoc to then managing your own group like how, how did you find that transition or are you still kind of hands-on in the lab
1: I think probably when I did my postdoc I was very hands-on in the lab I, I was I, I was a lab post where some postdocs can be writing grants a lot and mm-hmm. kind of managing a group for their PI so I was very hands-on in my postdoc and then when I started as a PI in my own job, like we have to remember as well that it's not just research that this job entails. There is a lot of teaching involved, which does take time and it needs, it needs attention and uh, examinations, uh, administration as well, and managing of your research grants. So at the beginning, probably when I had my first, probably second PhD student, I would have been a lot more in the lab. and I would have been with the lab coat on, and so on. And with our FLIM microscopy facility that we have, I would have, I still would go down and use that microscope. But Mm -hmm. somebody else would be culturing the cells. I probably would be popping in to see how they look under the microscope, or if somebody is making samples, I'd say, what do they look like when they're hydrated? And like walk into the lab and look at them. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it'd be a lot less hands-on in the lab, but that's just due to time constraints.
0: Yeah. No, definitely. And I think you know we spoke about this before that there is a lot of skills you know that are needed and and I think as well for a PI you know you're a manager uh, you're a scientist and then also you're a lecturer and mentor so there's kind of yeah it's uh I I'm I, I'm always amazed that you know especially for people like you even to find the time to do a science communication thing like this you know to chat to me today um is 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 amazing because I know you've got a lot on your plate I oh, know these are
1: these are the fun things and um yeah i mean we're not superheroes either like you know it's (laughs) some things i do badly as well
0: um and one of kind of the last questions i want to ask you which i've been asking a few of my interviewees is if you weren't in science and if you weren't um an academic researcher in the job you're in now where do you think you would have been or what do you think you would have been doing and and i know now you'll probably kill me but i've seen you on the bright club so you could have been a comedian now So, for anyone who doesn't know bright club is a, is a um a night where researchers try out comedy uh stand up comedy, so Michael has partaken in this yeah i don't know do you think you 'd be the next tommy Tiernan yeah
1: so if you if you watched it close to you you, really, you would know the answer to that question <laughs> the answer is no <laughs> um, so i think if i if i wasn 't doing this it's hard to know like if i'd stayed after my bachelor's, I think I might have moved into again, you know, when you go down a certain path, it keeps you kind of sometimes on that path. Uh, so I went down the academic route and it, it kind of is um, a very, sometimes a wide road with a few side roads, but very hard to get to those side roads, you know. And I can see that as well when it, you, you're talking to postdocs and so on there. Some can be very fixated on an academic career. Um, and I, I think, you know, there's definitely, especially nowadays with the industry, route, it's much, much more um, attractive uh, mm-hmm. at the moment than it used to be. And there's more appreciation for people with that high level of training, PhDs and, and postdocs. So if I'd gone from my bachelor's degree, then the other pathway, aside from academia, would have been industry. And a few things could have happened there. I could have maybe got taken into a large multinational company. Been very happy as well um, on, a, on, a, on a team working on some medical device and so on. I don't think I would have been because I like being my own boss as well and having some level of autonomy. So what would really have been an attractive career opportunity would be maybe yeah, getting that type of experience by setting up a startup. It might might have required you know doing an MBA or something to really understand the business world and how to to, to get through that. So that, that would have been the pathway there. And then I think otherwise, you know, if I had limitless resources and there's no need for cures or medical devices, I'd just set up like a hospitality business, you know, a restaurant or something, you know?
0: Yeah, that's the, you're the second person I've actually spoke to now who that has been their answer. So there you go. There must be some link between being a researcher and uh, restauranteurs. <laughs> I don't know.
1: I think so. Well, I think, you know, there are, there are similarities to it. You're, you're like the soul trader. Mm-hmm. In both cases, you're managing small businesses. I know they're very different. You're managing a team of people. You know, the stuff that goes on in the kitchen involves recipes. Um, there you go. Yeah. To together and it a successful dish yeah. or an experiment or a result, you know, and you want to get money in as well and you have to spend money going out. So there are similarities to it but
0: obviously you get nicer food. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> actually, it's funny. Yeah. Anytime I'm explaining, you know, an experiment or, or something to, like my sister at home, I always describe it as a recipe. So, uh, and, I, and I think there's actually, I think scientists are meant to be very good bakers. I, I, I haven't, uh, I don't have that skill. Unfortunately, I wasn't blessed, but hopefully it hasn't impacted yeah, like my not. science. <laughs>
1: I've met good scientists that are bad bakers, so okay. I, I, I wouldn't worry about it,
0: yeah. Um, well, Michael, thank you so much. That was brilliant. Um, thanks for again for coming on and chatting to me today.
1: Yeah, no, it was really nice. Um, I've never done this, but then really got into it then. It's it, nice to chat.
0: So that's it for another week of Unraveling Science. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts.